This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. And we are back this week with an exceptionally special episode. One that I have looked forward to literally for years. First, simply in being able to line up a conversation with Racheli Frankel, and then eventually actually being able to release it as there have been a long line ahead of this interview from our Israel podcast tour. Racheli Frankel, to many, is a household name in the Jewish world, but for those unfamiliar, she is one of the mothers of the proverbial three boys, that is the three young high school students who were kidnapped and it was later discovered, brutally murdered by Arab terrorists in the summer of 2014. It's one of those events that galvanized the Jewish world. 18 days of searching, of worldwide rallies and prayers, of hope and yearning, and ultimately of profound sadness. It's a type of event that many people remember where they were when they heard of the kidnapping and when they learned of the ultimate result. But this is also a story of light, of unity and beauty, of faith, both simple and profound. And I feel truly privileged to have had the chance to spend more than an hour with a woman of remarkable humility and courage and to use a word that she herself somewhat disdains, inspiration. This particular interview comes after we've done several series, one on bridge builders in Israel, and then another on journalism. And thematically, in some ways, I feel that this week's interview is an amalgam of both, because this was surely a story that dominated world headlines, at least in the Jewish world, and I believe even beyond. And yet at its core, it is a story that led to incredible introspection, growth, and yes, bridge building across communities. I will reference in this interview how I recall myself standing at a rally outside the Israeli embassy, arm in arm with Jews from across the denominational spectrum, the political spectrum, all united in this one cause to bring back our boys. And while the boys, unfortunately, were not brought back while still with us, in many ways, they brought back to us that sense of community and connection. And finally, just one note, I greatly appreciate listener feedback, and you can message me anytime at jewsyoushouldknow at gmail.com or leave a comment in the Apple comments section. And a number of listeners have pointed out to me that at times some of the audio on the live interviews in particular can be a little bit grainy and I appreciate that feedback. It happens to be that recording live ironically can sometimes be more difficult because we're not using a studio, we're recording on location and so the conditions can be a bit unpredictable. So I appreciate your indulgence at those moments when it is a little bit grainy and not quite as optimal as we would prefer. That being said, I think that the power of the messages emerges quite clearly 
despite any limitations of the sound. And again, thank you for sticking with it, even at those moments. And now, for our conversation with Racheli Frankel. We are here in the idyllic, highly bucolic town of Nof Ayalon, at the home of Racheli Frankel. And Racheli, you may or may not remember, we almost got to do this interview in America a number of months ago. The one time I believe we were in the same location, actually in the very same shul. It was the evening when a very close colleague of mine was getting married. And at the exact same time, right next door to the wedding in that, again, that same shul, you were speaking to a group and I was hoping we could connect then. It didn't happen for good reasons. Um, But thank God we are making it happen now. And I'm thrilled to be here. Hope you're doing well. And let's just jump right in. Tell us a little bit about where you're from and how you grew up. Um, I was born in Israel. I, in, I grew up in Ramat Gan. Um, I had the good fortune of my, my parents making Aliyah many years before I was born. Wow. My parents uh, were born in Europe and, and each in their own time uh, spent some time in, in New York. Wow. Your parents were before the war, after the war? So, so my father was born in Vienna, and actually, they, during the war, the war, they escaped through Switzerland and Paris, and they were in London and the Blitz. They ended up crossing the Atlantic when there were German submarines there still. He spent 10 years in New York uh, getting his education. He went to Yitzhak Rechem and YU, and he got a smicha from Robert Shaber Soloveitchik, and he did his PhD in... Uh, in chemistry, and by the time he was, before he was 25, he had just gotten married and made Aliyah to, for the first day of Barilan University, for the establishment of Barilan University. Wow, unbelievable. And he still goes there to this day, so. Wow, um, so he went there in order to be a, become a professor? Yeah, there? not only that, he went to study chemistry because he was trying to fa- find out what they need in Ertisrael. So they told him they need, uh, they need scientists. They need wow. The, so that's why he, he... So he's like a real Zionist. He thought ahead of time, like, what they needed in Israel? Uh, you know, he, he was raised... Uh, he was actually a refugee in Europe, running from country to country. And I, I can't say he, he got a Zionist upbringing. For him, it was just common sense. By the establishment of the state, it seemed like the, the next rational thing to do is to go, but he was, in, he was very young and he was getting his education, so he found out what do they need in Israel, and he decided to, to study that. But in the same time, he was in yeshiva, and he was, he was uh, getting smicha. And uh, yeah, it wasn't about a Zionistic upbringing, but about a very simple common sense understanding. But it's an amazing thing, because you think, you know, most people think of a career or profession, it's what do I want to do, and then okay, I'll, f- I'll find a place to do it. But here to say from the beginning what's needed, what's necessary, and then to plug that in is a very yeah. But you know, when thing. I think about my husband's family, it's the same stories. Uh, people were people were in transit. People were in uh, at the minute they became aware of the situation, they said, okay, so how should I train myself to be the right thing when I come here? Um, so that's a story that, you know, it, it, it doesn't seem very special to me, so <laughs> you're right, it's getting your priorities uh, in order. Uh, my mother um, was born in Czechoslovakia. She came to America when she was five years old. Her father is a, a Rebbe of a, of a small offspring of, of bells that are... Interesting, wow. 
Hasidic uh, background. Um, by, by the time we, we came along, uh, it's, my father's a scientist, my mother's a psychologist, we grew up in Israel, so we, di- we didn't grow up in the Barapak environment where, where a lot of the family grew up. But, uh, so your Yiddish is not, uh, not as strong? I do not speak Yiddish. I mean, I can say Geishlofen and stuff like that, but when, it, when, when I have to kick my kids to sleep, but uh, well, that's as far as it goes. So your parents both, even though they were, they were kind of refugees or you know, transitory, as you said, they both had this vision to come to Israel. From the way, many people could have stayed in, you know, would stay in America in that Actually, case. I think my, it didn't want on my mother, but uh, when they got married, she said she's willing to give it a chance. And the thing about her is she's the most optimistic person anybody knew ever. So when she gives something a chance, it, it usually, uh, usually works out. <laughs> so a, you grew up in this sort of academic world over there, the, the Barilan cocoon. Oh. Uh, what did you want to do for yourself as you were growing? Did you, did you have any passions, any specific interests that you wanted to Goodness. conquer? Goodness. Um, I wasn't one of these kids that knew from day one what they wanted to be, etc. On the contrary, when, when I finally got to university after high school in Shirut Lumi, uh, National Service, um, I, I tried out many things. I, I, was, I studied biology and psychology and computers and and I think it was only in the later, later stage that my husband reflected to me that, you know, all of these things, you do okay. But every time I see you sitting down to, le- to learn Torah, uh, you, you like, you, you're working in much higher uh, percentage of your potential. But you come alive, I guess. So eventually I, uh, I, I went to the world of uh, Torah learning for women. And when, I, when you ask what I was dreaming for myself, I don't remember dreaming that, but I remember doing that. My, my father learned with us. Um, there was definitely a modeling of, uh, of a Talmud Chacham at home that, that studies, every, learns every, every minute he has and learns with his girls and buys, uh, I mean, there were sons too, but uh, <laughs> um, just like the boys got the uh, Shasper Mitzvah, so the girls got the Steinzels version so they can understand wow. because they weren't studying at school. Uh, Etc. Etc. But um, I, I don't remember having you know a million specific plans. Right. Was that approach to, to learning for, for young women was that considered radical at that time, or was what was that, or was that to you just very natural? To me, it was very natural. It took many years for me to look back and to say, actually, I don't remember any of my friends. Right. Uh, so there were some people that were into that, but. Uh, it was today when we we talk of the world of of, um, of Torah learning for women, it's at least three decades decades old and probably more. And at the time, it was a very 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 beginning. My father, uh, when he was eventually he was um, in Hebrew, he called rector, but it's a kind of uh, head of the university. Oh wow! So for a certain amount of the, for for a few years, and and during that time when he was involved in in uh, running the university, he opened the the medrasha, which was he op- he opened the koilel, which was the Torah. Um, it was a place for yeshiva guys to be able to continue learning Torah seriously while they're doing their uh, their uh, academic curriculum. And uh, for him, it was very clear that if we're opening such a thing for guys, we must have an equivalent thing for girls. And I think that far was obvious to a few people. 
for him and very few others, it was very obvious that it can't be just sweet Torah for Meidelach. You really have to make, if they're working on their academic work, they have to be working on Torah. Right. And it has to be a serious place. And I think that was Rabbi Soloveitchik's um, argument as well when they introduced uh, Talmud to Stern College, mm-hmm. was that if women are you know, advanced in, in their secular educations and getting PhDs and who knows what, then, then you can't, by counterpart, give Torah, which is with a very lower, you know, a low level, it's not challenging their minds, come to see Torah as this sort of childish pursuit. Um, it's almost like a bizayon, it's like a degradation of Torah in that regard. I think that was his, from what I understand, was his argument. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it was never at any point radical, it was just kind of common sense. Right. It, it really, that's the way it was run. It was, uh, what are you making a big deal about it? Right. So... Yeah, so, so this is where you kind of threw yourself into this world of, of so learning, advanced so learning. Event, so eventually that's where uh, professionally I, I went. I, so you I, ended up working at bar No. Ah, okay. <laughs> I was going to say you have to use your protection. I come from the No. First of all, he was very, he did not like protection. Not that style. <laughs> but, um, but also my, my academic life is very uh, non-impressive. Um, but uh, I did continue in the world of women's yeshivot. And right. They're mostly in Jerusalem. And at different points, I, I learned in different uh, places. Eventually, I, uh, uh, I, I was a bit in Lindenbaum, but eventually the two places that I feel I belong to and eventually I came back to work in is uh, Matan, the Women's uh, Torah Institute um, that was uh, established by Malka Bina. Bina, sure. And uh, Anishmat um, that was established by Hannah Henkin. Right. And there, um, th- those are both places that where I was shaped as far as studying, and also have the wonderful privilege of working at today. Amazing. So, what areas really have um, been most captivating for you? What do you? You said your husband says you come, al- you know, come alive, or you, you find yourself at the highest, you know, actualization of your potential when you're studying and teaching. Are there specific areas that really grab you? The truth is, there's a point in time there were, uh, again, I, 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 I didn't, you know, there are people who had to struggle and you made the breakthroughs and I mentioned, you know, two of their names. Uh, uh, me and my friends, we came into the Torah learning uh, world just a bit after that. And that means that a lot of the way was paved for us and it was about growing and, and later leading within, within this world of, of women's learning. And um, there was a point in time where I spent quite a few years uh, learning Talmud. And there's something so wonderful about the fact that it's an endless sea, mm. but there's something so frustrating about it because you Tell can't. me about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, you can't put a handle on anything. You, you, it's really, you, at some point, you're in awe. Uh, but you also feel very, very small, yes. <laughs> which has a positive side to it, but it's also, you know, it could be frustrating. So at that point exactly, I, I was introduced to the, to the concept of Yotzot Elacha and Nishmat. Ah. And Yotzot Elacha are women that learned the, the curriculum of, of family law, of, uh, of what we call Nida. And there, uh, you know, I came, di- I, I thought, ah, oh, that's nice. I can take a certain field and just learn it through and through from the very beginning, from the roots, from the Talmud, from the Mishnah, and all the way to, you know, modern day responsa. And it's something you can start and finish right. and, and you can really have a... a some grass. Right. And I came for the books. 
but eventually it I, I found that there was a, a tremendous sign of side of service there mm. that is an, an unbelievable need for for women to speak to women about such issues for for a lot of questions to be answered so so I came into the certain world uh, thinking about the books and I found that there's a tremendous need and there's a tremendous service to be to be right. given to to Jewish women in, in different places. Uh, actually, I can say around the world because I work in the in the hotline. Ah, so we so get calls from, from all over. Wow. And uh, it's, it's really amazing. You know, it's you end up being for people in the right place in the right time, which is an unbelievable privilege. And those situations where, um, you know, the, the most dramatic is, is the time where they come over to you with a, with a nine-month stomach of, you know, very pregnant or with a baby in their hands, and they say, that's B'zchutchem. Wow. And that's, you know, you know, of course, these babies aren't born because of us, but being in the right place in the right time, and it happened multiple times, you know, to each of the also ha- ha- has a few stories of the kind. Right. And, and it's, not, it's not just about fertility it's about it's about uh, a marriage being pleasant and the interface with the world of, of Torah and Alakha being being easy and comfortable and uh, right. and people getting the answers they need and uh, mostly being able to communicate and and again here is when we went into started learning Torah it's because we wanted Torah but but here's a specific place where uh, the fact that it's women dealing with women has a lot of, of special meaning. Right. Um, so, uh, so, so this is today a specialty. And, and you teach this? You teach in that track? I, I don't teach it. I work in it. You work. I, in it. I work as a yoetzet, and I teach Talmud and Halacha at Nishmat. And I have a, in in Matan. There's a program. A, a bit of a small elite program where uh, my peers, women that have been learning for many years, come to get a more complete uh, education in halacha. Uh, it's an advanced halacha program. Wow. And, and again, these are people that are yotzat halacha and tonot rabbaniyot. They are already, they, they've done uh, a lot, of, a, learning, a lot yeah. of learning. And it just doesn't make sense for them not to have the more complete curriculum of halacha. And now here you can't just put a, a grasp on it, you can't say, okay, I'll learn uh, the, the halachot of Shabbat and, and complete them. Right. You, 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 we spent uh, you know, a year in this, a year and a half in this, etc., uh, etc. Et so we're starting our sixth year with wow. the same group of women. Uh, they spend three days a week doing their, and the rest of their life they do, they, they teach, they work, they, they do a lot of other wow. uh, good stuff. It must so, be a very tight-knit group. Actually, it is. Yeah. Actually, it is. And it's really... I'm trying to think, you said before, uh, if it's radical, right? there's nothing radical about it. it it's for the, these specific women, it's the, just the very, it's the right thing to do, it's a very natural thing to do. Um, it, it, for most of them, it came at the right stage in life, where mm. they were already working and teaching, and, uh, and they have a lot of, of, thank God, experience learning and teaching. And completing their halachic studies made a lot of sense. And, you know, I wish uh, people could be uh, witnesses to some of the discussions go- that go on in the WhatsApp group. You know, ah. Someone brings up, brings up a halacha question from, from everyday life. And, and every, you know, this bunch of 12 women that are on the one hand very, very learned, on the other hand, very, very humble. 
and it's a it's a very very sincere halachic discussion mm. and this brings this and that side and this side and, and this is just a whatsapp group <laughs> and yeah. so, uh, I find that amazing and really a privilege to be part of. Yeah, it's interesting because I think that the phenomenon of Yuatzot Halacha, of these women who are dealing more with family law and, and women's issues, intimacy, things like that, has managed somehow to escape or evade some of the controversy that has perhaps marred other initiatives and other uh, incursions you know, of different sorts of initiatives. Why do you think that's been the case? Do you think it's because of that, what you mentioned, this sense of humility? Or what, what's the secret sauce there that it's kind of been more accepted? Um, I have to say, specifically in this case of Yotzot Elacha, there is uh, this very, very careful le- leadership. Um, they were very, very, very aware of what they're creating. And every step of the way, they try to make both halachic coalitions in, in the forms of, of rabbis that give their, uh, their uh, consent and, and understanding, etc. And in the, in, you know, choosing very carefully who the women involved are, etc., etc. Because the fact that the, the job itself, the task of, of a yoetit and creating a yoetit, is, is a very important project, became very, very clear very, very quickly. But acceptance is also a very strong point. And to create acceptance, it, it takes a lot of wisdom and a lot of careful uh, decisions. Absolutely. Now, I, I have to be honest about this. It sometimes requires extra care beyond, you know, it, it's not just due gil- diligence. It's, uh, it's almost on the verge of, of internal politics. Because you have to, you want to, to create something that will get wide consent and wide coalitions and wide, uh, even the language used, okay? Uh, what a Yoetze Telecha is and, and what a Yoetze Telecha does. And, and there are places to argue uh, what's the difference, etc., etc. But within Am Yisrael, and this is already Rachel speaking, not, not, <laughs> not neither of, of the projects I'm, I'm involved in. I personally think that eventually many things could happen, okay? But but the stability of halacha and the structure of halacha and the checks and balances within uh, a Torah world have a lot of value for their own sake. So a, a religious life is and a religious uh, system is a heavy boat, and definitely it could be you know it could be fine tuned in many ways, and there are places and. Uh, to, to develop, and I'm saying the word develop, uh, it's, it's, it, there's nothing wrong with that word, right. but, it, but it has to be done with a lot of care, with, uh, with concern for what we call minhag, what was accepted, and what we call mesorah, what was passed down. And when things are done with a lot of care, and they have siyata dishma, they have, you know, the, the divine blessing, um, definitely a lot of things could happen. There are many ways of doing things, and I'm not being critical of, of other, other people or other ways. Um, I, when you ask why this project was accepted and somehow got under the radar of this document and that document and, and things that were going on regarding women's involvement in Torah, um, th- that's the answer. Yeah, it was done with a lot of uh, careful deliberation and sensitivity and really, it seems like, awareness of the potential pitfalls and also a sincere desire 
or respect for those who would otherwise be concerned about it. And instead of, it seems like it wasn't um, sort of dismissive of those concerns, but rather figuring out ways to work in conjunction with them or through them or around them or yes, whatever and it might on top be. of that, it answered a real need. So once it answered right. the real need, that also gave motivation to a lot of people to be nice. Like a de facto sort of uh, reality, facts on the ground kind of. Right. Were, women were really craving right. it. And, right, right. And, and, which you, you can, you can right. see. Um, so I, kind of, I want to transition a little bit and uh, tell me the degree to which you're comfortable discussing. But um, obviously, just over four years ago, your life was transformed in a very different way. And I assume you were teaching and studying and, and doing all these things all this time. And then your, your, your family's name became uh, known worldwide. I think uh, anybody who follows Jewish events and cares about Israel, this is like a, a watershed kind of experience and remembers you know, where they were and what was going on at that time, 2014, the summer. I, I certainly do for myself. And the... The, the kidnapping of the three boys, as it was called, I guess, sort of euphemistically, um, again, has become kind of this sounding call for, for in the Jewish world and then touched something and, and, and created something that um, is hard to find a comparison to it. Um, so again, to the degree that, that you're comfortable, I want to hear your experience a little bit and take us through those events, if you're willing. Um, yeah, for us, you know, it's, it's a Thursday afternoon, um, Actually, evening eventually, uh, we spoke to our son, our second son, Naftali, was in um, in high school and he just finished 11th gr- uh, grade. And he was in this Makor Chaim, which is a very special school, it is what a, I understand. It is a very special school. It's a, his, his older brother also went there. Yeah. It's two, two years older than him. Uh, Makor Chaim is... Originally created by uh, Rav Steinsatz, Rav Dov Zinger, ah, okay. and the, the main figure there is uh, Rav Dov Zinger and, and educators that, that he uh, trained over the years. If I have to describe Makor Chaim, it's a place, you know, I, I was once uh, next to Rav Dov when somebody asked him, what's, what's the kind of teacher that's uh, the, you know, the ideal teacher for you? And he said, do you know in Hebrew there's this expression, memale makom? Memale makom is a, is a substitute uh, teacher, right. except literally it means he's a filler of space. Right. Okay? So I want a teacher that's a mefane makom, mm-hmm. a teacher that uh, creates space, vacates space. Wow. Okay? Uh, in other words, creates place for, for, for the student. <laughs> It, it's a combination of very deep learning and very, you know, they take their, their stuff very, very seriously. And on the other hand, it, um, it, there's a deep trust for, for the student and the student's processes and um, helping them grow. Right. It's a, it, it, it is a very special place. I, read, I think I've read that there's a very unique emphasis there also on interpersonal relationships and some creative ways that they right. engage in um, that. Yes. They, um, it, it's very interesting because in a, in a teenage environment, it's very easy to be cynical. Yeah. And uh, they have something called blitz, blitz in it, uh, a time where we, we actually speak like people. And uh, they try to develop that skill. And they try to develop that skill in learning. And they try to develop that skill in prayer. And, and understanding this, um, uh, the concept of, of really 
really seeing the person or the or and, and re- really talking it's it's a great ta- challenge with teenagers because uh, they I have a couple so talking about it. They, they, <laughs> especially they, boys you know right they, they tend to speak little and not necessarily deep and and here it's it's the, there's something very and there's a lot of music and there's a lot of Torah and there's yeah. a real a very deep connection there's some Hasidut in the background right uh, And uh, yeah, I, I, we feel very privileged. I mean, uh, my oldest son was there for four years. Naftali got to be there for three years. Yeah. And, and eventually it was the last day of school. And we had spoken to him in the afternoon. He said he might come home in the evening. He usually came. It's a boarding school, so he came home every Friday morning. Every Shabbat they would be home. Right, so every Friday morning he would be, he'd be coming home. And because it was the last day, and they, it was, uh, they went on, uh, on, uh, on a trip with the, with the friends, So he said he might come home in the evening, and then at, uh, I think about nine o'clock, he sent us a text that he's on the way. It took us about an hour to notice the text, and when we answered, eventually, many days later, we figured that our answer got to his uh, phone, I think two minutes after it was all over. Mm. But, but we didn't know that. Of course. <laughs> and... Um, Next thing we knew was uh, three 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 thirty at night uh, there were bangs on the door and uh, I remember waking up looking at the watch and saying this cannot be good <laughs> and turned out so you didn't know when you went to sleep no he'll come he's, he's big he's independent yeah. it, was, yeah. it was Thursday after a very tiring week we no we weren't uh, worried then but but then we opened the door and there were policemen there and And it turned out that there's a classmate of Naftali's, Gilad Shaer, we didn't know previously, that, um, you know, he was in phone contact with his family. family. At some point, the phone didn't answer, and, and then um, they expecting him, he didn't show up, and they started making phone calls. And the friend said that he and Naftali left school together. So eventually they got, because it was the middle of the night, they got to the police station, and the policeman came to us. And, you know, uh, with this blissful ignorance, I, I've walked to the room, sure, that uh, I'll find Naftali and, and Gilad there. That didn't happen, and the phone was dead. Started thinking, like, we knew we were in trouble, but we started thinking about traffic accidents. Right. And two hours later, we got the last placement of their phone, which was in the Hebron uh, area. Right. And once we had that piece of information, we understood the arena, then that we understood This is probably terror we're just uh, this is probably a hostage situation and etc wow. and and then uh, started 18 days of search uh, where of course there's a personal level of, uh, of anxiety of you know you don't eat you don't sleep you know etc but uh, there was also on the on the national level on the community level on the family level uh, um, unbelievable su- support. Every human thing possible was done you know, both on the side of the of the government and the soldiers and the intelligence and they were working you know 200% of their potential uh, the mother is calling their their sons and saying don't come home without the boys they, they, that doesn't happen in Israel you know a, a mother of a soldier never says don't come home it's it's people and then within 24 hours we started getting responses from the diaspora and people started calling from from Australia from Argentina from later on you know it's like as the Shabbat uh, right. so 
uh, all over the United States, Europe, and I spoke to Jews from Kathmandu, uh, not Israeli trailers, not Bet Chabad, just Jews from Kathmandu. And um, the story goes, one of the, the people I answered on the phone was, said, I'm considered a non-affiliated Jew. And um, I want to tell you I'm so connected and I, and I care so much and I'm with you. And, and this was a phenomenon that grew and grew and grew. And so you were personally very, speaking to these people during that time? Look, the, the, we're sitting now in, in, uh, in my home in Nofelon, and if you could imagine, outside in the street, within 24 hours, it was like a, there's a television program, The Big Brother. Yeah. So there were 40 photographers and journalists and whatever, but they were very civil, they were very... You know, no one tried. They were they, respectful. They, they, more than respectful, they were. They were part of the experience. Really? They said we spoke to them later. They they said we hardly felt like journalists. We were so involved. And there was a, a little tent out here that um, uh, children and youngsters filled twenty four hours a day learning Torah. And there were constantly, you know, people coming in and out from every corner in the world just to, to bring a piece of their heart, to show support, to, to bring a letter, to bring a, you know, a gift or a, something to show we're with you. There were, uh, there were signs all over and in, with us in the home was a, uh, a team of uh, an IDF negotiation team. And they were a, a great source of, first of all, of accurate information and also of support and good advice. And they were, you know, expecting the call from the, from the hospital. Right. And, and then we answered phone calls. <laughs> so some of them I answered myself, some of them uh, my sister answered or, or, or people around here. Yeah, there was a lot of direct contact and, and the house was mostly open. People, people really? came in and out. From time to time, our you know our neighbors gave us uh, space. Yeah, yeah. They they made sure that we have some, you know, some time with the kids, uh, putting them to sleep, having it. But it, altogether, everything was very very intensive. I remember a mayor of a city in the north walking in and saying, "If Hamas would know what this did in Am Israel, they would have never done this." Right. <laughs> you know? right. In the sense that there was a an unbelievable sense of, of solidarity, of different types of Jews coming together, caring about one cause. Um, I, to this day, I, I meet uh, people from communities around the world and they say, you know, a miracle happened to us during those days. And I say, what's the miracle? And they say, during that time, we stood together a reform, conservative, reconstructionist, uh, orthodox, <clears throat> Hasidic, you know, and, and we prayed together and we rallied together and later on we had a memorial together and the elders of the communities don't, don't, don't remember anything like this happened. I was going to say, I'm not an elder of any community, <laughs> but <clears throat> I do recall going to a, uh, an event, a rally outside the embassy in D.C. I live right near D.C. I was out right outside the Israeli embassy and it was the whole community, it was the, from across the community. It was put on by one of the organizations, but everybody was there. And I thought to myself, I never saw this before in the community with everyone with the signs and the hashtag, you know, bring back our boys or bring our boys home. Was, bring back our Bring back our boys. And I remember it was just so moving. It was so heartbreaking, but also mm -hmm. so moving. And it just, I don't remember um, a time like that. So people say that Five decades ago, when uh, Jerusalem was liberated, for, for five minutes there, everybody was very uh, standing together. Um, but it's true, for at, at least for decades, there wasn't such an experience. And, and it, you know, it makes you want to uh, beg, <laughs> you know, let's find uh, excuses to come together. Let's right. find uh, reasons to connect. Uh, 
possibly if, if it's not tragic. Not through tragedy, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, were you aware at the moment of the magnitude of what was going on, or you were? I mean, as, look, it was 18 days. So yeah. as the days went by, we we became more and more aware. Right. Um, we we kind of made sure not to not to um, read the media. Right. Um, it it was just too much for sure. us. Sure. But we did have people coming to our home, writing us, calling us. We felt the prayers, the energy, the, the when, when a person, you know, I walk in, I walk in the street, could be anywhere, and and a person stops me and says, "You don't know me, but I know you." Right. And it could be, you know, I don't know, in, in the middle of the United States somewhere. I don't feel that way. I feel like I do know them. Wow. I like we went through something together, and and that feeling that she knows me, I, I feel it. Uh, you know, I might not have met her face, but or whoever it is. Uh, I do feel connected and like I know them because wow. they were with us in, in a very, very difficult time. What was your interaction with the other families during this whole period? Were you in constant communication? You, you didn't know them at all, right? I didn't Did you know become them bonded? I mean, imagine you would become bonded at all. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, I, it, it took a couple of days until we met for the first time. And then any major meeting, you know, we <coughs> sat with the prime minister, with the head of defense, of, with with uh, with intelligence. So all of those things took place together, and definitely there was a, there was a bonding there. Also, after the result uh, became right. known, we have many connections. We're involved in projects like Unity Day and right. Jerusalem Unity Prize, and uh, we we share. Uh, this wish that something of the, of the spirit of, of unity and solidarity uh, remains and grows, and we're very involved in that. Also, our kids are together in, in, in like things like one family that, that helps terror victims, right. and, um, and there, there are many bonds. Amazing, amazing. So, at the end of the whole process, I guess at some point, eventually, the army is the one that comes and informs you, and is that the family, I imagine, finds out first? Is that how? They're very careful about that, I would imagine. They try very hard. Try. It's, it's difficult in this time and age. With the social media. But, yeah, actually, one of the interesting things is that the the team that found it was a team of, of civilians and and the army people. And the the generals on the ground had the humility and the, uh, you know, it, it takes it for, for, for an army general. They don't, <laughs> like, they don't like civilians around them. Right. And they like to run their show. And they, they were willing to get advice and to get help and to get practical help from any, from anybody that has a good idea and has and has a connection to the to the area there and and there were some uh, nature uh, specialists you know people oh. people that can notice a little plant out like of trackers place trackers or things like so, that so so eventually it was a combined team that found them uh, one of the one of as you say trackers. He, he noticed a plant out of place in a place they were already going to leave and and they were discovered and uh, yeah we did get the message and th those those were difficult moments yeah. um, and it started a, a long path of yeah. uh, of healing of rediscovering uh, things of being there for your children for your family yeah um, yeah did you have a, like a mother's intuition at any point that never never no, actually, I was quite optimistic. Really, I wasn't naive. I mean, I knew there are different options. Also, the the people that spoke to us, as far as the officials from the army, etc., they were very open. They they were very honest with us. They said, "Look, all options are possible." You know, possibly the, we knew there were shots, 
but possibly right, that was the phone call. Right, either. Gilad managed to call and say we were kidnapped. Right. And um, we didn't know, you know, it might have been to scare them, to get their cooperation. Right. Maybe, maybe they're wounded, maybe they killed two and one is kept alive. One, you know, all options are open. Sure. We're working under the work assumption that we're looking for, for live boys. Right. And that work assumption made all the, all the difference in the world. Because I, I could have been speaking to you now, four years later, and have no idea what happened to my son. Right. And these things happened in, in Israel, and uh, the people that to this day, their mystery wasn't solved. Right. And, and here there was a, a sense of urgency, and a sense of uh, they might be alive, and, and we're going to turn the world upside down until we find them. And thank God, um, we we you know we we were hoping for the story to end differently. Right. But we we had the privilege of bringing them home, of burying them in Israel and here together in Modi'in. Right. And uh, nothing could be taken for granted there. I I remember standing a year later in the area where they were found. We were brought there. And, uh, you know, the expression, we'll leave no stone unturned. Right, right. There were millions of rocks and stones and holes in the grounds and wells and basements. And, you know, it's, it's an endless search. And I felt what kind of unbelievable devotion everybody involved had. And also a sense of divine grace that we get them home. And I know that's a bit... It's touchy because you right. know it could it could have had a different end or or it could have not happened at all, but we were you know eventually within we, the circumstances within the circumstances yeah. we were very we were very lucky. Yeah, because I, I think there was later some degree of recrimination or something with, with respect to the police that because there was this call and there wasn't an immediate response potentially and some people say you know we're upset but it sounds like you don't have a harbor any of that resentment. First of all, the facts in that case are uh, a that fifty percent of the calls to to the police right. uh, emergency is are prank calls. Right, prank calls. Mm-hmm. And and it's a judgment call, and we're yeah. human. But beyond that, even if they would have known, it wouldn't have changed anything. Because it was uh, so quick. Because we later knew that while the call was taking place, they were shot. Right. Uh, so, so it wouldn't have changed anything. Uh, so no, I have no. I, I feel. I feel. You know. Of course, anything in the world that has to be corrected, it's it's a it's an ongoing process. But uh, I don't have any resentment. So how has this all impacted? You know, I, I know you speak all over the world now, and you speak a lot about about faith, Muna. How is this? How do you process this as as a religious woman? And uh, you know, and and what messages do you take out that you? When you're speaking in all these places, like I said, I saw you in Baltimore. What messages do you try to share when you're speaking around the world? The truth is, I, I, I'm surprised by the situation, and I kind of consider it uh, temporary. Um, and I also must say, I don't have any speech. I don't right. come to any, any community or any place uh, with a prepared speech. I... I have a deep interest in, in meeting people and, and talking to them. And whatever comes up, comes up. So I would never, you know, if, a, if, a, if, if someone in Israel said, um, come give us a sicha be'emunah, I would sincerely say, I don't know how to give a, a, a class in faith. You know, I, it's, it's not my thing. I truly don't know how to do it. In conversation, when discussing this issue and other and really uh, frankly i use this as a platform to right. speak about anything one of the amazing things that that happened was that we get to meet 
so many people, so many interesting people, so many unbelievable, you know, parts of, of mostly the Jewish nation. And we have conversations. And, and when people ask the question of faith, I can only say what's in my heart and what's in my heart that moment. So, and, and I, I don't feel like I'm carrying a message of faith around the world. You know, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm even a little bit surprised that this is one of the things that I'm identified with. Why are you surprised by that? I mean, here you are, having gone through the most terrific of circumstances and coming out with such a maintained connection in such a deep, profound way. Why is that surprising? Um... Because I don't feel it's it's I don't think it's a it's a topic that uh, that we're saying anything new about. You know, someone says, "Okay, so you're asking, how did this affect uh, your faith?" And I'm you know I'm looking into myself and I'm saying, I understand that this this issue of crisis of faith. And the more I I meet people, I I see people experiencing terrible terrible experiences. You know, ours was a condensed 18 thing, so it was very dramatic and it got a lot of attention. But people experience things over years, uh, very difficult, very you know. We 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 should protect us from from some of the stories, and. Um, and the concept of crisis of faith, I, I, I realize it happens. I, some, I, you know, I see people, they experience uh, a lot of difficult places. For me, it seemed irrational. Because for me, uh, and this is not judgmental, but to me, uh, you know, before there were bad things happening to other people. And I was a believer. And now something bad touched mm -hmm. our life. So, so what changed? You know, uh -huh. how, how exactly does this make sense? Fact is, bad things do happen, right. and uh, I think uh, of Steinsatz once told me that uh, the way we say in prayer, that God creates peace and creates everything, is just politically correct for the for the original verse in Isaiah, that is that, that God creates peace and creates evil. Now, I don't know why on a theological basis right. there's evil in the world. It's an endless discussion. Sure. But, but it's a fact of life. And, okay, so now it touched our life. What can we do about it? Just deal with it. To me, on a, on a faith level, this experience was mostly an experience of, of vulnerability, of being very, very fragile and very exposed. And right. what I want more than anything else is totally out of my control. And right. it, it's... In a great sense, it's a lesson in humility. And so that eventually could be a lesson in faith. Did you think that, that aspect of public you know, awareness made it easier or more difficult for you to, to kind of cope with it all? In the core experience of bereavement, there's a terrible wound that is a very private wound. And you live with it and you, and you grow with it and whatever, you know. Um, my friend uh, Sherry Mandel, sure. mother of Kobe Mandel, she says yeah. it's not about overcoming, it's about becoming. Mm. Okay, so so that those are processes that a person goes within, and and your your Shabbat table is your Shabbat table, and and you know Nama that just walked in here a minute ago, she she told me a couple of years ago, she said, Ima, do you still put on your makeup only when you get to work so you can cry on the way? And I was like, oh, I was shocked. Wow. <laughs> but then I said, I wouldn't think it's. You know, I wouldn't want her to think that it's business as usual. They told her, you know, it's not like every day the whole way I cry, but I reserve the right to cry. So those private places are definitely there and, and you know, nobody's going to take them away from you. 
And on the other hand, the context, the support that, you know, I wish for anybody in their difficult times and inevitably difficult times do come. They don't have to be crazy and dramatic, but they are difficult times. Absolutely. Anybody should get a fraction of the support we got. It's unbelievable. So yeah, definitely there was a lot of wonderful things in that part, in the, in the very public part. Uh, and the choice of you know speaking to you or being more private right. about it is my choice. Sure. Okay. Um, sure. So so nobody has to feel bad for me that I right. that I I'm, you know in the limelight. As long as it's right, I'll do it. When right. it stops being right, I'll stop doing it. Regarding the faith issue, <laughs> I, I know people you know that their world could turn upside down, and the one thing that isn't touched is their faith. For me, faith is not that kind of experience. It's a very dynamic experience. Mm. And some of the times you feel very close, and some of the time you have doubts, and some of the time you feel estranged or you feel distant. And it's as relationships go, they're very dynamic. And I think I learned way before this that I don't panic when that happens because it goes, it's, you know, it's like the graph goes up and down right. and the line becomes straight only when the patient dies. Right. So that's the nature of relationships and, and what you have with a Kadosh Baruch with God in your life is also a relationship and, and it, it could have all of the above and to me it seems natural. Uh, it's not the only way to go about it, there are other people that experience it differently but I, I sometimes feel the need to, you know, you, you meet a young person that is all shook up because, I don't know, they're in doubt or they're feeling distant or they don't, they don't feel their faith is what they would have wanted it to be. And our life is constantly a work in process. Right. And, and, and it's okay, it's okay. You know, if you're not comfortable here, go ahead, work on it. But that's my experience anyhow. Dafka, uh, Dafka is a word you can't say. Specifically, I don't know how you say So here in this experience, it, it's not that. In this experience, it was very... It was so much, you know, life and de- death issues that you felt so close, you felt mm. so dependent, you felt so out of control, you felt like uh, your protections are, are down. And that is, in a way, is, a, is an experience of life. Because yeah. most of the time we walk around with so many layers of protection and padding. And uh, and, uh, and then you hear my kids, um, um, you know, fighting in the background. Yeah. And you see we're absolutely normal. Life goes on. You know, yeah, they go on and there's nothing very... Uh, and they're adorable. Call about this. <laughs> adorable as can be. I want to ask you, you know, sort of taking what's emerged from all this. You mentioned the Unity Day in Jerusalem, uh, Unity, Unity Prize. Prize. Can, you, can you talk a little bit about what that is, what that kind of evolution or genesis was? So um, the mayor of Yerushalayim, Nir Barkat, uh, walked out of our shiva homes and, and had this idea that he wants to establish, he offered to establish the Jerusalem Unity Prize. And he made some phone calls to some of his, uh, his very, very wonderful philanthropists. <laughs> and it's a combination of their good heart and Nir's, Nir's uh, initiative. <laughs> and, and there, with the help of, uh, of Gesher and other, yes. uh, other parts. I interviewed we, uh, over there as well. Daniel Goldman. Daniel, oh, he's amazing. Yeah, wonderful he's amazing. Um, they, that, that was created. And, and we, um, you know, we wanted more of a, of a process of, and, and more of something that, that could be uh, experienced by Jews around the world. And today, the project of Unity Day and Unity Prize is, I can't even say commemorated, it's celebrated in 40 countries around the world wow. um, where Jews uh, find an excuse to get together 
of Jews of different walks of life. Uh, it, it's like a platform that every community finds the right way to, you know, what's right for them. But I've been in places where uh, the reform community, the conservative community, the reconstructionist community, two orthodox communities, and altogether all the Jews of, of, the, of the town decided to have a Shabbat meal together. Okay, now it's Shabbat, so this kashrut, this, that kashrut, will, you know, will they use a microphone, will they not use a microphone, uh, will there be a separate minion, will they not, it, it, there are enough reasons to fight. Yes. <laughs> Yet they had this motivation to, to experience a, a Shabbat meal together. And I remember being there and people were actually emotional about the fact that, you know, you lived down my block for so many years, I, I hardly ever said hello to you because I don't know, you're from the temple and you're from the shtibel. Um, and I, I think sometimes we need, there are plenty of differences and I'm all for machloket. I, I think machloket, uh, uh, um, how do you say machloket? Arguments, uh, the, the, the mm, it, divides. It's more than, <laughs> no, I'm not talking about divides. I'm talking about the <coughs> true debates in, debates in Bet Midrash, okay? It's like we grew up in Bet Midrash. That's where our religion, our culture, that's where we grew up. So machloket is good, okay? The divides are already a, a separate uh, thing. And, and if I sit with a reformed Jew, I might ha not agree on anything, okay? And, and yet the connection and the recognition that we're one people and we're recognition that we're extended family and that it's worthwhile to keep that connection. It's not a simple thing for many Orthodox Jews. Um, right. And for me, for me, it, I, I think it's it's very very worthwhile. You know, I, I remember asking myself, how come in that community where I was describing, how come it can work here, and in so many other places they wouldn't even walk into the same hall together? Right. And I found that over the years in that community, the rabbis of the shuls had an ongoing relationship and even an ongoing chavruta. Okay. Now. Chivruta is exactly that. Chivruta is you, you, you have your friend and you learn Torah with, and as that goes, most of the time you argue. Yeah. yeah. And it's fine. Right. But, it's, but it's respectful, and, it, uh, and I can disagree with every word you say and still love you greatly. Um, we live in, a, in, a, in an age where everybody knows the difference between like and love. This I actually also heard from, uh, from one of the communities. Even Israelis that speak Hebrew, they know the difference between like and love. Like is what you do on Facebook. <laughs> and, and the truth is, you don't have to like everybody. You don't have to like people from your own family. You might dislike people for a variety of reasons. Love is a different story. Love is a deep covenant. It's a responsibility. It's being there for people in their time of need. It's recognizing that there's a, an eternal connection. Um, and, and for me, this experience was mostly that was understanding the, the, what goes way under all, right. our, or, or all our disagreements. So, so unity is part of it, and it's, it's a growing project, and it's just one of many projects that, that, uh, that are intended to bring uh, Jews closer together. I, I have a bit of a blunt way of phrasing it. I don't need the world to remember my son. I, I'm altogether I'm not sure what I think about commemoration. Um, mm. he, he was a wonderful, wonderful kid. You would have never met him, okay? You would have had nothing to do with right. him. But if we can remember who we were during that summer, who we were as, as people, as society, what it brought out of us, 
uh, that memory, ha memory has great value. So it's not even remembering him as oh, much as it is remembering a, ourselves. To me, so I can only speak for myself, okay? <clears throat> I'm not talking about every, anybody else. To me, it's, it's, it's not remembering him. It's, I, I hope he lives on in his family and his friends, people who knew him. Right. But the memory of who we were during that summer... remembering ourselves, that's what you're saying. Yeah. Definitely. The memory of who we were during that summer, that could be inspiring. And I hate that word, inspiration. But <laughs> it, that could give you recognition of what you're capable of, what, what, could you, what you could strive for. A young woman from Toronto told me, and this is, this is a story with no drama, okay? Um, she said she was so involved and she was praying and, yeah, and, and then the bad news came and my husband called and told me. And I was alone in my house. And this is in Toronto, so she says she, she, ran, she ran outside, she was feeling sick, she ran outside. And later she was reflecting on what was she doing. And she said, I realized that in time like this you want to be in, with family. And I ran outside and any arbitrary eye, Jewish pair of eyes would have been family for me. And it, it's a simple sentence, but it's a life-changing understanding. It really wouldn't have mattered if they go to this or that, or, you know, or they, or whatever, whatever walk of the Jewish life they are. She she needed she needed uh, someone to share with her. Right. And just recently, a couple of months ago, and this is almost four years after 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 it all happened, uh, someone uh, meets me and tells me, um, you know, during that time we were we were in vacation in Italy and at the Levaya we felt so bad we stayed in the hotel but the next day we went out to the store and someone asked us where are you from we said we're from Israel so he, he gave us a piece of paper and said look at this so I look at it it's all in Italian I don't understand a word what is this it says that every Jewish shop owner in Rome closed shut their their store during the time of the funeral now the, the shop owners in Rome, they, it's, a, it's all kinds of Jews, right. and, and, and yet they felt that <laughs> we got during that time, we got like books full from every corner of the earth, books full of mitzvot that communities were collecting in merit of the boys. So one of these communities I, uh, I actually got to know closer, they're uh, outside of, uh, I wonder if they're listening, outside of Phoenix, Arizona, ah, yeah. uh, in Scottsdale. Scottsdale, Rabbi yeah. Shoshan? Uh, Rabbi Alush. Rabbi Alush, okay. okay. So um, this community outside of, uh, of uh, in Scottsdale, they created this little uh, clip, video clip, where they were collecting a thousand mitzvot in merit of the boys, and then it became a thousand mitzvot in, in, in memory of the boys. Right. I remember asking the rabbi, did they not lose their motivation? And he said, no, on the contrary. And you hear, you know, one person says, okay, I'll put on fill-in once a week. And one person says, I'll kosher my kitchen. And some one person, you know, I'll, I'll try to make peace with my sister, whatever it is. And, and then the rabbi says, we heard the terrorists on the, on the phone call uh, saying, put down your heads. This is our way of, of keeping our heads up straight. Very nice, very beautiful. And they showed me the clip eventually. And I remember uh, after listening to that video, a lady approaches me on the side and she says, um, you know, I didn't want to say this on the movie, but the mitzvah I accepted upon myself was to date only Jews. Interesting. And I said, okay, for a 16 year old kid, you have quite an effect on generations. <laughs> You know, yeah. um, so something about, and I can go on and on yeah, and on and so on many, with, it, with there's so many of these things. Uh, there was an event here that touched people's lives in 
mainly in recognizing a deeper connection that we share as, as the Jewish people and uh, really um, an extended family in a sense. Have you ever contemplated why this particular tragedy galvanized the Jewish world in such a way? I mean, in my shul, one of my shul, the shuls I daven, there's a parochet, a, a cover for the Torah to the Ark that it says the three boys, this is in memory of the three boys, it says all their names. Why this particular tragedy? Obviously, I don't know. Yeah. I can say that um, the whole concept of uh, Pidyon Shvoim and, and uh, releasing, yeah, yeah. Uh, releasing, when some, somebody has one of our own, uh, is deep, deep in our DNA. And non Jews over the history knew it and, right. and, and offered a boost. Took advantage, yeah. I think the fact that it was children. Children, yeah. Family life and children in the center of family life is, is who we are as Jewish people. It's, it's our core experience and it's what we're willing to protect. And, and, and everybody could have imagined uh, that happening to them. Uh, there, there are a few aspects here. I, I think the fact that there was hope, the fact that, uh, you know, in, for many days we really thought this might end up good, so people let themselves emotionally become attached. Uh, you can't walk around and listen to the news and walk with the sorrow, sorrow of the world on your shoulders. You want yeah. to live, you know, God willing, a, a happy, healthy life. Um, but in cases like this where there was room for prayer and there was room for hope and there was room for rallying and whatever there was, uh, that made a big difference. And, and there might be other things that I don't, I don't know how to say. Right. No, that sounds like a, a, a very good, as good a, a conjecture as any. And theory as any. Just in closing, Heli, you mentioned you work at um, these different women's institutions, and one of them being um, Nishmat. And it's well known that another tragedy occurred in that family, and that you mentioned Robinson uh, Hankin, Rabbanit Hankin. Um, she lost family, her son, right, and, and, uh, and daughter-in-law, and, daughter and um, obviously a terrible, terrible tragedy that was also very well publicized that he was a great Torah scholar, and there was other dimensions to that. Did you feel uniquely positioned to be of solace and be of support? Um, it was very close to home. Uh, I, I experienced it like all of us experienced. I, I didn't feel, you know... Um, like this is reliving anything or uh, Eitam was it, it, it's a terrible loss to the Jewish world yeah. he, he, he as you said he was a true Torah scholar Nama was a very very unique talented individual uh, uh, she, she you know people speak about Eitam but she she, she had uh, amazing talents she uh, she wrote poems she was uh, she was an artist uh, an unbelievable mother and wife. Mm. We all experienced that pain because it was it was very very close to home. Uh, as you know, Robinette Hankin is is a, is a person of very of many resources, yeah. and uh, I don't think she needed my help. And yeah, you know, I've been watching, but. Um, but in general, have you found that you, that there's like a bond of a, sort of a fraternity of a sisterhood, perhaps of. Of sorrow in this respect with others who have lost and and or do you support each other and have you been able to support the next unfortunately wave of, of women who have gone through these kinds of experiences um, <laughs> what I do do is I, I try to come to the shivas yeah. of, uh, of some of these uh, occasions um, it 
it takes some courage uh, to walk into a shiva house that's uh, full of pain and i didn't have enough of that courage and i have a good friend that that you know pushes me and and we go together and often it's not about the words you say it's about being there in my specific case it's about recognizing and you know passing the hug on and you know once you experience the hug that you got that the jewish people is capable of giving you can't be cynical about it it's, it's really unbelievable and so in that sense I, I i do try to to be there there i must mention there's a wonderful organization called one family yeah that works a lot with both with children and with adults that were affected by terror and for my kids it's been very very important it gives a sense of you know normality in an unnormal situation but mm. uh, everybody there has gone through something and they have amazing activities for them and for the parents too you know uh, from time to time we would go to do some psychodrama with mothers that experience something like that or some creative writing with with uh, with a group of uh, of uh, women that that lost children that's the kind of support that works for me right other people go for, search for other kinds of support uh, i yes i i feel that um that going both trying to be there for others and and accepting help is also one of the lessons that that came with this experience Um, I remember my first response when people from one family contacted us was um, it's okay we you know we're thank God we have a lot of uh, resources right. go, tr- go try help someone who needs it and they were proactive about about you know making sure where we come in and and learning to accept is a big deal yeah. and learning to reach out for help is a big deal and then trying to share it with other people that might need it is also very important so yeah there there uh, it is it is part of uh, of what happens and i wonder if you know that that whole idea of being able to receive help and you talked about we talked about faith but that's a very deep part of faith as well that ability to as you said before be vulnerable be open to receiving um is very much a, a touchstone of faith itself It's true um you know there's a often quoted Rabnachman uh, Breslav where he says that a broken heart is not identical to depression it's not identical to atzvut which he it, depression could be a poison in your life but a broken heart is uh you know it's the crack through which you grow it's a i think of the Zinger says the opposite of a broken heart is walking around the world with with serene wrap uh, over your heart it's all very well protected But there's nowhere to grow and there's nowhere to, to exit there's hardly anywhere to breathe um, accepting vulnerability and is 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 saying I can walk around this world with with a broken heart with but it but it, it's a, it's a vibrant place it's a live place mm-hmm. it's a crack you you can grow out of not not out and leave behind but you know some growth could happen there and it's not the poison of depression and though sometimes people have to deal with stuff but it's uh, it's understanding that you know a person could choose uh, to take a bucket of black paint and spill it all over their life but to me it seems stupid to me it seems in my life as ingratitude because there's so much blessing in our life and personally my my core experience is is an experience of being blessed and yes there's also the parts that are broken but that's that's life <laughs> my mantra on it, uh, on the personal level is I can feel pain I don't have to become my pain I can feel sorrow I don't have to become my sorrow in my inner landscape there's so many 
other shades and experiences and dreams and disappointments and blessings and awful lot of blessings. So that's on a personal level. And on a, on a more, you know, nation level, during the eulogy, uh, Rav Zingel said, you know, people say where there are two Jews, there are already three opinions. Right. But I want to say, he said, where there are two Jews, there are three opinions, but one heart. And to me today, you know, there might be a hundred opinions, it's fine, it's who we are, we're very passionate people and we have differences and and that's who we are. The inner knowledge, the the understanding that there's really one heart connecting, that makes all the difference. And uh, during those those eulogies, uh, two people didn't hear each other, Um, they, they spoke in different communities. One was Yair Lapid. And he's like a second-generation atheist. Right. And uh, the other was Rav Dov Zinger, who's the Rosh Hashiva of Makosha. Uh, yeah. And they ended up using the exact same words. They were talking about the minhag before the tradition, before you start davening, to say, I accept upon myself the mitzvah of Ahavta Laracha Kamocha. Yeah. Love thy neighbor as thyself. And to me, the fact that two such pe- different people chose exactly the same words it's like the essence of this experience. Yeah. And actually what, what happened later was that um, I met Rav Grossman of Migdala Emek. Yes. And he said, you know, wouldn't it make more sense to you if we would say, before we start praying, I accept upon myself the mitzvah of Vahavta et Hashem Elokecha. Love God, yeah. Love God. You're about to pray. Right. <laughs> and I said, yeah, you're, you're right. And he said, but imagine a real family. What would a real parent prefer? that everybody would turn to him and say, we love you, we love you, could you please give us this, that, the other? Or they turn to each other and say, you know, you dress all differently, you believe all differently, you, you, you have different dreams for the Jewish people, but you're bro- my brother and I love you, and you're my sister and I love you, and then together they come, you know, to the parent. He said, wow, now it all makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> so that's, really, that's it. Really beautiful. Well, you spoke about the broken heart, and I'm very grateful that you chose to share a part of that heart with us. And I know you don't like the word inspiration, but there is inspiration. And if anything qualifies, Rachel, this is it, okay? So I'm not, not going to let you uh, get away with not using the word um, in this case. But uh, Rachel Frankel, thank you so, so much for sharing your time, your story, your passions, uh, your love, and uh, your wisdom with us. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.